0: So Rip Wahlberg is going to come and be with us. Rip is a pastor of a vineyard in Pennsylvania and is on the same spiritual renewal team that uh, Phil Urena was. And you remember Phil came and spoke here uh, right at the end of August, 1st of September. And so Rip is going to kind of continue. um, What we had wanted to do was we brought Phil in initially to talk about the Holy Spirit and some things, and and RIP is going to sort of continue in that vein, and so we really uh, are expecting great things, and so want to invite you all um, to come not only on uh, Sunday morning, but then also uh, Sunday evening, so we'll do it at the regular time, 5 to 7 with ministry time, it may go on longer than that, Uh, so that will be January the 15th, so two weeks, so keep that in mind. Now, if I can make this go the right way. All right. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be here beginning a new year. And we um, approach it with great hope for what you have in store for each one of us in this new year. And so I, I just pray your your presence here with us now, your manifest presence, I pray your blessing upon this message and upon whatever fruit comes from it. Be with us as we uh, dive into your word. We give you thanks and praise, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, some of you were perhaps at Gatherings last night uh, with people, and, and maybe y- there were some people there that you didn't know, you know. And so that's always been sort of an uncomfortable place for me, you know, to try to make conversation with folks that I don't really know very well, and you know, being more of an introvert, that's just not that's not my happy place. Um, but I have learned that there are some questions that you can ask that can really sort of make that a little less stressful. And one of the questions that I have found that is a really great way to get people talking, uh, it's also really good to use if you have a group of people who, uh, you know, you're kind of getting them all together and they don't know each other and uh, you want to start to build some uh, sense of community with them and, and, and have them get to know one another, is to ask them if they have had any kind of a brush with celebrity. Now, um, I started to think about this, and I realized that I have had a lot more of these than I really realized. You know, when I started to sort of go back in my mind and think about all of this, you know, I obviously um, I played college basketball and played at one point against Larry Bird and a number of other people who ended up in the NBA. So I mean, that was sort of that was sort of cool. But there were some other things, like in college. Uh, this was 1976, so you guys could do the math. Um, Gerald Ford came to Butler, where I went to school, on a campaign stop. And I was selected from a journalism class to ask President Ford a question because they really thought, well, they, they wanted folks from the audience to come out and ask a question, but they were f- fearful that people would be too timid to do that. And so they said, would you be one of the ones that will just ask a question at the beginning? And so um, I asked him, and some of you will remember back on Sa- when Saturday Night Live uh, at that time, Chevy Chase, it was really one of the very first or second year of the program, and Chevy Chase was portraying President Ford as this bumbler, right, who was always falling, and, you know, and it was really kind of ironic because the man was an all-American football player, but yet he had tripped at one point and fallen, you know, and so now all of a sudden he's this goofus, and so I asked him if that bothered him, and uh, the, the question actually made the national news. Um, it, it was just a question that I, had, I was interested in knowing. So I had that. I, I met Rod Carew at one point, who was a baseball player uh, of some note. I actually was on a soundstage in Hollywood once again with my team, and uh, Mae West was there. Now Mae West was ancient <laughs> at this point, and um, uh, but it was, uh, it was funny because there were three, t- we were out there for a tournament, and so part of the festivities of this tournament was during the day we got to tour these, these, uh, this uh, Hollywood set, and so she's on this set, and uh, there's three basketball teams sort of standing there, and in her inimitable Mae West fashion. She goes, ooh, just what I like, a room full of men. (laughs) So that was memorable. Um, I worked some with uh, Richard Lugar, who was the governor of Indiana and later a senator, um, doing commercials with him. I had lunch with Cheech and Chong one time. (laughs) That was funny. Uh, well, the part of it that I will never forget was that uh, Cheech Marin asked the waiter who came up and said, um, what's your soup today? And, and the waiter said, broccoli soup. And he goes, broccoli, blah. <laughs> I was like, well, I've thought that. I've just never actually said it out loud. Um, I rode up an elevator in Pittsburgh with Richard Simmons. <laughs> yeah? That was, uh, that was, and he was dressed like you see him on TV his little tank top, his shorts. He had just come in from walking. I was standing waiting for the elevator, and there's commotion kind of occurs at the front of the hotel. And all of a sudden, here comes Richard just walk, walking in, and he walks right up to the elevator. And I'm just kind of like, well, hello, you know. Um, and I, I did sit next to uh, Dave Robbins, who was a Virginia Union's basketball coach. Uh, at a wedding reception of all places, one time, and got to talk to him, so that's just that's uh, there may be others. I just don't remember them, but I, you know I've sort of have had this variety of experiences. And you know, I think <clears throat> most people tend to have had something like that happen to them. Like my friend Sam, uh, when I asked him this question one time, his his brush with celebrity was that he met and was on the Sailor Bob Show. <laughs> now if you're from Richmond, you know what I'm talking about. Sailor Bob was one of those children's programs. He was the host and it was, uh, it was based on Popeye. That was the cartoon that was sort of uh, popular at the time and so Sailor Bob was the, was it, really if you were a kid in Richmond. And Sam got to meet Sailor Bob. So I was curious, has anybody here had some sort of a brush with celebrity? All right, Donna, just ju- just a name. Steve Martin. Okay, that's pretty cool. How about you, Don Barbara? Donnie Osmond. Donny Osmond. <laughs> oh no, really? Wow, Rich? Festus on Gunsmoke. This is we're getting quite a list here. Alan Iverson, basketball player. Brad Dowell, lead singer from Boston. Okay, lead singer from Boston. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Durante. Jimmy Durante, Fine. kind of with <laughs> Mae West there. <laughs> <laughs> Ree? Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin. John? You wouldn't know if he was Ray Mott as an Australian uh, national celebrity. Okay. Andrew? Just Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Oh. Cool. Jim? Bruce Willis, and Justin Jennifer- Thoreau, okay. George, Pierce Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan. wow. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, and Jimmy Carter, and Ros- oh, cool, okay. Denzel Washington. Huh. Denzel Washington. Huh. We've got a really an interesting cross section here, but see what I'm talking about. You know, you just you ask this and, and it's it's immediately sort of opens this door to conversation. Okay, so with that all with that all said, let me ask you another question. You don't have to answer this out loud. But for those of you that have had such an encounter, other than giving you a good story to tell, did your encounter or brush with celebrity really change you in any way, or change anything about your life. See, I can speak for myself, and you've heard I've had many of these such encounters, but honestly none of them left me any different. None of them changed the course of my life in any way, other than to give me an interesting story to share. But, what if, what if you could have an encounter that would literally change your life? What if you could have an encounter that was so amazing that it actually changed the way that you viewed the world? What if instead of feeling all fearful about all of the uncertainty that's going on in our world today, uncertainty about politics, about terrorism, about your life and the lives of people that you love, just about the future in general? What if instead of all of this fear and uncertainty, you had an encounter that filled you with a peace that said that everything was going to be fine. Now, Scripture tells us that the prophet Isaiah had just such an encounter. Although, calling this a brush with celebrity doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah had an encounter with God in all of his awesome majesty and in all of his glory. And it it initially kind of freaked him out, as I suspect it would all of us. But ultimately it became a source of comfort for him. Especially because he, very much like us, was living in a world that was filled with uncertainty. And so if you have a Bible, and you would like to follow along, we're going to be looking at um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And we do have the scripture up on the screen, if you do not have a Bible. So, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. All right. so, we're going to start with verse 1. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. So right away, that kind of, we're going to stop there and say, well, okay, we, we kind of need to clear something up. What happened? Why is that important? Right? Obviously, it's important because it's mentioned here. But what happened in the year that King Uzziah died? Well, there was a king, <clears throat> and he was an Assyrian king, and his name was uh, Tiglath-Pileser 3rd Wouldn't you love to be the third with that name? Tiglath-Pileser III, and he came to power in Assyria, and it was about 745 BC, and what happened was he began to consolidate power in the entire Mesopotamian region, and uh, at the same time he was, was consolidating, he was also beginning to expand his empire, and now it was including uh, the smaller states of Syria and Palestine. And so, this is the very beginning of a pretty serious military threat that's going to sort of hang over the nation of Israel (coughs) and Judah for quite some time. And what's eventually going to happen is, because of this king and what he was doing, uh, it ultimately caused the downfall of the northern kingdom Israel. It caused the destruction of the capital city of Samaria, uh, along with a lot of other cities in both Israel and Judah, and the deportation of large segments of their population were taken captive and taken into slavery in various places. And so during most of Isaiah's lifetime, he lived under this sort of oppression and this threat of Assyrian domination. Now, even though it didn't hit Judah as hard as it hit Israel, um, there, there still was that possibility and so I think really by anybody's definition you would be it would be hard to say that Isaiah was living in a world of uncertainty with this all hanging over their head at any given time and so to continue on in verse one and it says I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple so it's at this very time in history that Isaiah, and at this point Isaiah is probably either serving as a priest in the temple or he has served as a priest in the temple. So he, he understands what it looks like. Okay? And so he has this vision. And this vision is an actual encounter with God think of a dream that y- y- we've all had i believe those dreams that seem so real you know that you just you wake up and y- you're either all frazzled or you're in a sweat or you know it just it seems like this just happened and you you know you realize you're in bed at home you were asleep and so th- that's really how you should think about this was it just it was this it was so real he knew he was there And what happens is this earthly temple that he's very familiar with because of his duties as a priest was suddenly transformed. So this familiar area all of a sudden gets transformed into something that now allows this small human being to actually enter the throne room of God. And there he sees God. And as he says, high and exalted over all creation in heaven and on earth. And so three things sort of immediately strike Isaiah as he's seeing this. That he, he was seated on a throne, that he was high and exalted, and that the train of his robe filled this entire place. And those are all, I think, symbolic things. And what they would mean to Isaiah would would probably be that the throne would, would emphasize this idea that the Lord really, truly was the king of Israel. The idea of him being high and exalted emphasizes his position before the nation of Israel, that he was above all. And this long robe speaks of his royalty and his majesty. And I think there's something else going on in this as well. And it's, I think, notable that there is, if you look, there's this comparison or or contrasting between the earthly king Uzziah and the heavenly king. And this, this whole idea of divine kingship is really one of the central themes of this chapter. And not so much divine kingship, but more... Israel's rejection of its divine king. You see, what had happened, if you go all the way back to the book of 1 Samuel, and the people of Israel are crying out because they want an earthly king. God has been their king, and he's appointed judges over the nation of Israel, but yet they're saying, no, we want an earthly king like that country, and that country, and that country. It's kind of this really twisted version of keeping up with the Joneses. They're not satisfied that the Lord God of all creation is their king. No, we've got to have an earthly king. And so what happens is God anoints Saul. And Saul was the first king. And Saul, not so good as a king. Now, there were better kings that followed, David, of course, being one of the more notable ones. But then there's a whole history, if you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, that speaks about all of the kings that came and went. And it seems that most of them were labeled with this, these words that said, and so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord. And every once in a while, you'll have one that did good. But that is who Israel chose to follow above this heavenly king. And, and I think it, it's pretty similar to what we see here in this country, if we're honest. You know, what's happened in the U.S. is that the, the increasing wealth that we have, which is not in and of itself a bad thing, don't hear me say that, but it's brought with it this diminished view of God. It's like, well, we got money. We don't really need God. We're doing okay. Got a nice house, car, job. What do I need God for? Well, that's kind of the way Israel was for a long time. Right? And so that's kind of what's going on And so there's not only a parallel with these kings, but there's a parallel, I think, between that time and this time. All that being said, what I really want us, though, to take away, just from this verse in particular, is this description of God. To focus, because I think what it is really trying to do, it's trying to reemphasize the power and the holiness of God in whose presence everybody is overwhelmed. So let's look now at verse 2. And it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, seraphim is the plural. Seraph is the singular of these types of beings. And it literally means searing, or burning ones. And they only appear, appear here in the Old Testament as members of God's court. Now it's very it's likely, we don't know for sure, but just in sort of supposing, they more than likely covered their faces so they would not see the holiness of God. And they probably cover this idea of covering their feet was, is more than likely a euphemism for covering their private area. So that would not be displayed before God. And they were flying so that they could maintain this position around the throne. So that's an, another part of what Isaiah is seeing as he's entering into this vision. So we'll go on to verse 3 and 4. And it says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now this threefold repetition of the word holy, I I don't think it's as suggestive of the Trinity. Some theologians might see that. I don't really think that's what's going on. I do think that it's a suggestion of complete holiness. Three is a number of completion. And so we see them saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then this this Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And it means weightiness or heaviness. And it can refer to like the reputation or the, the importance or the weight that a person carries in society. And I think also, if you've ever experienced sort of the glory of God, you can f- actually feel a weightiness that sort of comes upon you. You just, you know it when it happens. And the the thresholds were these large foundation stones that the doorposts stood on. And and this shaking really represents the awesome power and presence of God. I thought of this last night. We we went to a wedding uh, last evening downtown at Centenary United Methodist Church, which is an old, old church. Uh, It was built in 1840-something. And it has one of those enormous pipe organs in it, right? And I was telling John earlier that it's got that one pipe where they hit that one note, it's a low note, and the whole building vibrates. That's kind of what this must have been like. Only, you know, ten times that powerful. Just that awesome presence of God. And the smoke was probably this glory cloud that we see popping up in Scripture uh, periodically um, that sort of followed the Israelites on their journey through the desert and that the priests uh, in Solomon's day, when they dedicated the temple, saw show up in the temple, this cloud of glory. Now, what do you think your reaction would be? If you can kind of put yourself in Isaiah's shoes or sandals, what do you think your reaction would be if you all of a sudden were just face to face with this? Would you be awestruck? Would you be intimidated? (laughs) Would you be freaking scared to death? (laughs) I'd vote for that, for sure. Okay. Verse 5, and here's what Isaiah said. Here's his reaction. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Now some translations will say ruined or undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, probably a lot like us, Isaiah immediately realizes he's got no business being here. He's now seeing what was even forbidden for Moses to see. If you remember the story, Moses is on the mountaintops and he asks for God to pass before him. And God hides him in the cleft of a rock and only lets him see him as he goes by, but he does not get to see his face. And here Isaiah is getting a privilege to see something that even one of the the faith's fathers did not get to see. And what happened at this point is that the vision actually turns Isaiah's sight inward. And what he now begins to realize is his own sinfulness. And he's this woe language that he's using. And he had used this before to really express his own sorrow at the state of the nation. Now he's using it to express his own sorrow because he realizes he has the same problem he now has to endure what he proclaimed to others. The language that he used predicting the death of a nation is now confessing that his own death appears certain. And his unclean lips really probably means more than his words. It probably symbolizes attitudes and actions as well because A person's words tend to reflect the way they think and the way they act. So he is just terrified. No. There. So then verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And here we get sort of an Old Testament picture that dramatizes the the odious nature of sin before God and the power of God to forgive and forget. The coal was was from this holy altar, was so closely connected to it that it probably shared the character of the altar as well. And so the heat and the holiness sort of joined together just to take all of this sin away from Isaiah and now prepare him to use those lips to proclaim God's message to all of the people that he is to speak to. Isaiah sort of is confessing, and he goes to this point, he says, you know, I am a man of unclean. He's expressing this before God, it's his confession. And God accepts it. He knows Isaiah was a sinner. But he says, you don't have to stay that way. And so God takes away his guilt and atones for his sin in this one act. But you and I don't need to have that done. See, in that time and place, Isaiah's experience was unique. No one else in the nation of Israel had ever had to go through anything like this or had had the privilege of going through anything like this. God did not take away the guilt of the nation of Israel at this time. And he didn't atone for their sins either. And while Isaiah experienced God's presence and the peace that comes with it, the rest of the nation was no closer to God than it was before. Such is not the case for us, however. Because in the person of Jesus, we have been given the same gift that Isaiah received, the removal of guilt and the atoning of sin. And with that removal, we receive something else unrestricted access, unrestricted access to God's presence, the very creator of the universe. We can encounter a God who's not just a celebrity, but a God who is the definition of unmatched and unsurpassed greatness. And it's in knowing that greatness and acknowledging that God is sovereign over all that allows us to overcome an uncertain future. In fact, I would probably say it this way. When God shows up, fear can't stay. When you cultivate a relationship with God, there remains no room for fear. Fear must go. Fear has left the building (laughs) if God shows up. You see, 20 chapters later in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah wrote this, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. You have to wonder if Isaiah wasn't thinking about this experience when he wrote those words. Isaiah understood that by trusting in God's sovereignty, in His unchangeable nature and His power, that he was making a choice of where we fix our mind's focus. So I would suggest to you that if you want to get to a place where when God shows up, fear can't stay, it's going to require two things. First of all, a belief that you can know God with at least the same sense of immediacy that you know another person. And second, a willingness to cultivate spiritual receptivity. Alright, let's look at that a little bit more. First of all, this item of belief. I think it's a very sad but very true statement to say that people in general and even Christians do not believe it is possible to be intimately acquainted with God. See, I think some see God as an inference, not a reality. In other words, they can look at the evidence, and from the evidence, they can infer that God does exist. Okay, they look at the created order, and they think, well, there's got to be some sort of a higher power behind this. So they sort of believe that there is a God, but they don't take it any further than that. Other people, God's really just hearsay, all right? They've heard about God from others but they really have never bothered to explore the possibilities for themselves. They just choose to you know, maybe believe or maybe discount it but they don't go any further with it. They never take any effort upon themselves to try and figure out is this God real? Other people see God as an ideal Such as, you know, a name for goodness or beauty or truth. Now, in theory, in theory, Christians are supposed to go further than this. You know, we confess these creeds which talk about a personal God. But the sad truth is that in reality, God is no more real to them than he is to these other people that sort of infer that God exists because of the reality of the created order. They don't think of him as anything other than that. Do you want to know how to fix that? Faith. Surprise. (laughs) It's faith. But it's, it's beyond faith in God, if, if you'll allow me to say that. It's faith in the entire nature. It's unwavering confidence in spiritual things. Okay? It's believing that a spiritual kingdom is real. It's not just believing that God exists. That's great, but that's only a first step. And what we're talking about now is this having is this idea of having that sort of deep internal peace that allows you to no longer worry about who's in the White House, what Vladimir Putin is doing in Russia, um, you know, all of those things that, you know, you see on the news or we're constantly bombarded with and if you al- allow yourself it can be overwhelming it can just overwhelm you with negativity and so I would <coughs> I would strongly encourage you to make it a goal for this year to cultivate that kind of faith you know not just these other kinds that are much lesser in their quality. If you will have a faith that has at its core, at its root, this belief in an unseen spiritual world, then you will start to believe that a personal relationship with God is attainable you don't believe that, then that's going to seem like something that you just are never going to be able to get to. So acknowledging that really is first. And secondly is this idea of spiritual receptivity. Now, if you look at the people in Scripture that had a close walk with God, and and let's say even if you look at the people outside of the Bible that had a close walk with God. Billy Graham, Charles Finney, uh, Martin Luther. You could go on to name many other names. So we have the characters that come from the pages of scripture and you have these individuals that exist outside of scripture that are in our world, right? And if you start to look at them and if you began to compare what they were all like, you would find that there were (laughs) They're pretty different, in fact they're not really much alike at all. They have different nationalities, they have differing levels of education, they have uh, different personalities, they probably had different habits. There's far more different about them than there is the same. But I would suggest that there is some one, at least one vital quality that's the same in all of them. Despite all of their differences, there's one thing, at least, that they all share. And I think it's this. They had that level, that kind of faith that I spoke of earlier. So maybe we'll say there's two things. They had that first and foremost. But they were open to the existence of heaven. And they had just even a small measure of spiritual awareness that they used, they utilized, and then they continued to, to develop until it became the single biggest thing in their life. Simply put, they spent time pursuing God. They knew the importance of cultivating this skill and of exercising it in this area of spiritual life. You want some evidence about just how little things have actually changed? in this area. Just under 70 years ago, pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer wrote on this very subject and he said the following, a generation of Christians reared among push buttons and automatic machines is impatient of slower and less direct methods of reaching their goals. He wrote that in 1948. He could have written it yesterday. In fact, I would suggest things are even worse now in this area than they are before. Our attention span's about that big. We're constantly captivated by our devices. And I'm as guilty as anybody here, okay? So I'm not, I'm with you. (laughs) I understand, I get it. but we've got to understand that spiritual spiritual receptivity is available to everyone. We are not on one side of a chasm and God on the other side. We are not at the bottom of a mountain and God at the top. We are not on one side of the world and God on the other side of the world. God is right here right now. It's part of the faith I was talking about. God is is omnipresent. David wrote about it in in one of the Psalms. He said, there's nowhere that I can go that you are not. If I go high, you are there. If I go low, you are there. If I go here or there, you are there." And Jesus came and did what he did to take away the one thing that blocked us from from this relationship. And aren't we just a little bit scoffing at that work if we don't take advantage of the opportunity that he has provided us with? Yes, it's wonderful that Jesus' work on the cross has afforded us the, uh, the forgiveness of our sins and, our, and given us this ability to go to heaven. But that's really a futuristic thing. Honestly. I mean, unless you take advantage of this relationship that you have right here and right now, then the only assurance you really have is the fact that you're going to get to go to heaven someday, which is, again, great, but it's not everything. And so why go through life and live in such a way that is so far diminished from the way it could be? Amen, and so you know we're at this p- point where we have this um, this new year tradition of making resolutions, and we we make resolutions about a lot of different things you know this is everybody, gym memberships are, are through the roof right now and um everybody's downloading diet things from the internet, and we're all going to lose 20, 30, 40, whatever pounds, and exercise more, and do all these wonderful things. Well, you know what? That's all terrific. It really is. But what could be better than resolving to have an increased amount of faith and to spend time pursuing God in the new year. You want something that will really change your life? You want something that will increase the amount of hope that you have? You want something that will take away all the fear we have of all this mess that's going on in the world around us that we have no control of anyway? But there's one who does. And he's the only one that matters. And you have the opportunity to sit with him every day and let him reassure you that it's all going to be okay. It doesn't mean that it's all going to be perfect. Some of us will still get sick. Some of us will still have tragedy occurring in our lives but ultimately God says it's all going to be fine. We can choose the way we go. We can choose to be fearful every day. We can choose to dread what this politician or that world leader said or did. Or we can have peace each and every day Because we understand this very simple spiritual principle that says, when God shows up, fear can't stay. And we actually put into practice the faith and the time that's required to become intimately familiar with God. If you choose to do that, I would love to hear from you in a month. Come tell me in a month how it's going. But resolve to stick with it. It's not easy. But it's worth it. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back. Before they start to play, I just want to, if someone would uh, shut the lights off, please. Just want to pray uh, for God's presence. Pray that, that in this time we would um, get just a taste of what that feels like, what, that, what you can experience every day in your own quiet time. We want you to experience he- it here. But more, even more than that, I want you to experience it at home on a daily basis so that it just continues to draw you deeper into a relationship with God because that will not only change your life, it will change the whole the lives of so many people that are around you. The impact is exponential. And so, Father, right now I, I just ask, We acknowledge, first and foremost, your omnipresence. The fact that you are everywhere all at once. But there's a difference, Lord, between your omnipresence and your manifest presence. And it's your manifest presence that I pray now, Father, that you would bestow on us as a people. That as we worship this last time, we would begin to feel... The weightiness of your glory. Holy Spirit, come. your people more.